Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got the great good fortune to welcome Rahil Raza as today's Spirit in Action guest. Rahil speaks out powerfully as a Muslim for the rights of women and other marginalized minorities and for an unblinking and compassionate approach to differences, including the threats posed by extremists within the religion to which she is devoted. Among her books is How Can You Possibly Be a Muslim Feminist? And her latest is The ABCs of Islamism, Everything You Want to Know About Radical Islam But Were Afraid to Ask. She was born and started out her life in Pakistan, and she arrived in Canada some 30 years ago. Ron Mayer is also with us, a former correspondent with the Clarion Project, who will join in on my interview with Rahil from his home in Israel, while Rahil Raza joins us via Zoom from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Rahil, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I love the name Spirit in Action. I mean, it totally exemplifies the spirituality that I am trying to find in my life. It's a great name. And Ron, so wonderful to have you helping us connect up with Rahil Raza. Thank you so much for joining us also for Spirit in Action. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about your spirituality. Born and raised as Muslim, and you've embraced it. Uh, You are a devout Muslim. That doesn't mean the same thing to everybody in the world, I think. I Actually, I noticed on one of your covers of one of your books, it seemed to me to be a whirling dervish image. Yes. Which, of course, is one small sliver of Muslim practice, the Sufis, right? Tell me about your religious progress as a Muslim, uh, how you were raised, how you identify now. Well, it's been a fascinating journey. I was born into a Muslim family in Pakistan, and I guess by default, you know, you're born in a Muslim family, so you're considered to be Muslim. My family is a Sunni family. And I was taught the basics of Islam more like dogma than explanation of spirituality. You know, we prayed five times a day. My mother and father were not extreme, but, you know, they were practicing. They practiced the faith in a very moderate way. So we prayed, we fasted in in the month of Ramadan. But there wasn't any infusion of dialogue or discussion or spirituality. So I was always a rebel and always a questioner from a young child and therefore constantly in trouble, as I have been for most of my life, for asking too many questions. And when I would question about, you know, why do we do this or what does this mean? I mean, we read the the Quran, which is the holy scripture of Muslims in Arabic without really understanding what it means or, you know, what the deeper meaning was. So when, as I was growing up, of course, in Pakistan, it was not easy as a young girl to be that kind of a critic or questioner. It was only as I grew older and left Pakistan and then had young children of my own that I realized that there is so much more to my faith that I need to know. Now, Coming to a Western society, which has been, you know, over 30 years, when people would question, I would question as well. 
So I would say in a way that both my husband and myself, uh, by the way, we are an interesting combination. He is from a Shia family and I'm from a Sunni family. So we call our children sushis. Uh, but that itself was an interesting challenge as we challenged each other's dogma and rituals and having the freedom to actually ask those questions and being very fortunate to find some wonderful mentors and teachers and spiritual guides here in Canada was a great opportunity for us to relearn what we actually had been born into. So I know the term uh, reborn Muslim doesn't apply to Muslims. You see, you know, you hear that a lot in Christianity. But if ever I was to relate to something, I would say that in many ways I relearned my faith and I relearned it with a spiritual eye, with a critical eye, through questioning, through dialogue, discussion and debate and not depending on someone else to tell me what it means. I started reading the Quran to understand it myself you know, many different interpretations, because maybe you know that the Quran has been translated into, you know, almost 70 languages of the world, and the interpretations are slightly different depending on who has interpreted it. And throughout this journey, I kept looking for the feminine. I kept looking for the gender equality. I kept looking for the feminine voices. And it took me a lot of very deep digging to find that. And I did. My question to myself, as I was trying to understand what it means to be a Muslim woman, my question to myself was, when people ask me, why are you a Muslim? Am I just going to say that I'm a Muslim because I was born a Muslim? Or am I a Muslim because I understand what it means to be a Muslim? Am I empowered by it? And of course, the question of feminism, of women and gender in Islam is the biggest question. That's one of the biggest challenges. So I didn't want to lie to uh, my audience or to myself. And as I started coming into public speaking and writing, I found that I had to research for myself. And I did. The beauty of it is that at the end of it all, I found, and I do today, that I am totally empowered as a Muslim woman because I was able to dig through the history and find that there is so much more than what people know. You've mentioned already you're part of a Sunni family with a husband who's Shiites. Yes. I like the name for your children, by the way. But (laughs) what does that mean to those of us outside the Muslim fold? Why should you have been at odds with your husband? So the Muslim world, 1.8 billion Muslims, is divided into many different sects from the beginning. When Islam came as a faith 1400 years ago, of course, it was a one message, which was a message of the Abrahamic faiths. It was a belief in one God and acceptance of Muhammad as a prophet. But there were many different schools of thought, and it was perfectly acceptable for Muslims at that time to say that they were following a particular teacher or a particular scholar, and therefore there were different paths, so to speak. And it was an open invitation, find your path to God, Find it through whichever teacher you like. So within Islam, we don't have formalized priesthood. And the reason for that is that the people are told to empower themselves to read, understand through reasoning, intellect and knowledge, come to the faith by understanding it. But of course, there are teachers and guides and scholars, and those are supposed to be the imams. Within the Muslim world, there are many different denominations 
as a reason of following different teachers. The largest denomination is Sunni, which I would say exemplifies Saudi Arabia in a large part, parts of Pakistan, India. And the second largest is Shia. Shia is primarily from Iran, Iraq. The difference between Shia Sunni plus the other smaller denominations is not theological. It is political. To be a Muslim, you have to accept the five pillars of the faith, which is the simplest thing. And those five pillars are belief in one God, monotheism, prayers five times a day, fasting in the month of Ramadan, to go for the pilgrimage to Hajj, if you can afford it, and to give charity. These are the five foundational pillars. And the prophet once was asked, you know, what is Islam? He said, it is helping your fellow human being. So other than that, there are many different paths that people follow. Now, as I said, theologically, there isn't a difference between the denominations. But among Shiites and Sunnis, because of the political issues between Iran and Saudi Arabia primarily, there has been tension. There has been tension from the beginning, and the tension is political. It deals with who should have been the heir to the prophet on his deathbed. So when I use the word political Islam or Islamism, I'm going back 1400 years. I have said, and I still believe, that political Islam was born on the deathbed of the prophet Muhammad. The politics of that time, the rulers, the power, the patriarchy, is what brought this issue of division between the Muslim world. So in Pakistan, these differences came to light in the 1970s, Pakistan, where my husband and I were growing up. When I was a child, we did not have these divisions and differences. We were told to respect each other. But we had a president by the name of Ziaul Haq, who I will call an Islamist through and through, who was very much emboldened by funding from Saudi Arabia. And he implemented these differences, which became huge. So if you look at uh, Catholics and Protestants during the height of the Irish drama, it was the same situation. A question of coming together with different denominations, not frowned upon by society, by religious leaders, by families, because it is easier to divide and rule. But we fell in love and we decided that we can minimize our differences and bring up our children to be human beings, good human beings, rather than divisive. What is the political difference? How does that play out today? Is it only because some people are Saudi Arabia-centric and some people are Iran-centric? On the deathbed of the Prophet, he did not have a male heir. So there was a group of people who believed that he had appointed Ali, who eventually became the fourth caliph, who was closest to him spiritually, very, very spiritually close to the prophet, had been brought up like a son by the prophet. There are those who believe that he should have been the rightful heir. But he was a very young man. And so the heir after the prophet said the first caliph was not Ali. And so those who followed that trend of thought and believe that it should have been a political caliph call themselves Sunnis, which is the majority. And those who believe still that Ali should have been the rightful heir call themselves Shia. The word Shia means friend. So they used to call themselves Shiani Ali, which means friends of Ali. And so they sort of separated themselves from the masses because the lineage with Ali was he was also the son-in-law of the prophet. He was married to the prophet's daughter, Fatima. So there was a huge spiritual connection, whereas the other side was directly political. They were about power, patriarchy, because by the time the prophet passed away, 
the message of Islam had spread immensely and the tribes had come together and they had accepted Islam and they were paying taxes. So for the following rulers of many generations, it was all about power. Whereas for Ali and his followers, it was about the message of the Prophet. It was about the spiritual message, the wisdom, the path that needed to be followed. And this is where the division started. So political Islam took on power patriarchy, a control, whether that control had to be imposed in violent ways or whether it was done through conquering. But that's what it was. Whereas the others, and that's where Sufis come from, they said, we don't want anything to do with politics. We want to worship the one God, the God of Abraham, the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians. And this is where the pluralism comes in. And therefore, Sufism is very, very universal. But the politics of division had already, the seeds had been sown. And so that's where the division started, but then exasperated by power in Saudi Arabia with this concept of Wahhabism, which they follow, which is a very dogmatic interpretation of Islam, their understanding, which they believe they need to impose on the rest of the world. In challenge to that is Khomeiniism which is what Ayatollah Khomeini propagated, which is their own version, which they believe they need to impose on the rest of the world, both of them oil-rich countries. And the turf war between these two powers is being fought out in the rest of the Muslim world. Do you still consider yourself, Rahil Razad, you consider yourself Sunni? Is that something that persists? Because I don't see you as being political in terms of Iran or any of the other countries. Actually, I don't. I have dropped labels. This has been part of my journey. Uh, if someone asked me, I would say, yes, I am a Muslim, but, you know, a Muslim in terms of submitting myself to God. But I do not wish to be identified by any label. Um, <laughs> you know, people constantly want to, to label you. So I said, OK, if you want to label me, call me a humanist Muslim, because I believe in humanity first. So uh, my journey, again, has been of um, reflection, of trying to understand, and it is still continuing. It's a constant journey. I learn something new every day. I do not identify myself with labels anymore. You know, folks, we're speaking to Rahil Raza. Her latest book is actually The ABCs of Islamism, Everything You Want to Know About Radical Islam But We're Afraid to Ask. And we're going to delve into that. I wanted to start with a good overview of Islam because I'm afraid that too few people in the West have much of a grasp of what it is at all. So I think this is going to be a very useful book. But even more so, you referred to the Muslim Brotherhood and I was just wondering if anywhere, including in Canada, where you're located, or in the U.S., there is a Muslim sisterhood. What a lovely question. What a lovely question. No, there isn't, not that I know of. And if there was, I hope it has nothing. It is nothing like the Muslim Brotherhood. That word, Muslim Brotherhood, is so tainted. There are different groups of sisters in Malaysia. Sisters in Islam is a very progressive Muslim women's group, but definitely not a Muslim sisterhood in terms of, of those words. In preparation for this interview, Rahil, I watched some of the videos, learned a little bit about Dalia Mogahed, and I'm wondering how good of a sister she would be for you. Well, she is uh, very visionary, very educated, 
I would say her leaning is more towards a Wahhabi idea. And I saw a documentary that uh, she had made with John Esposito. And anytime I hear someone speaking about how Muslims have been oppressed in the West today, how much Islamophobia there is, somehow it raises a red flag with me. And I'll tell you why. I've lived here with my family for over 30 years. Uh, I've traveled across North America and Europe in Western world. I present myself very openly and honestly as a practicing Muslim woman. I cannot say that I have once been faced with what they call Islamophobia. I've been faced with questions, challenges, uh, critique, but everything is not Islamophobia. And so I see around me Muslims living very comfortable lives with great respect in amazing positions of power. So this ideology of victimhood and victimization is something that is not part of my dialogue. And so I tend to distance myself from people who are constantly promoting an ideology of victimhood because this is, again, an Islamist concept. It's an idea of politicizing the faith. Let us present ourselves as the victims so that nobody can criticize us. I mean, look at today's political correctness. Look at today's cancel culture. Look at how the extremes, both the far left and the far right, are not allowing dialogue and discussion and debate about any form of extremism, whether you call them white supremacists or, but especially Islamist extremism, that's a no-no. You'll immediately be labeled a bigot, a racist. You know, the word Islamophobia will be thrown at you And so where I stand, I tend to distance myself. And this is just my personal decision, because I believe we are not victims. I believe we have the power to speak out and bring about change, which is why I try to do that. I'm wondering if it's just a difference of emphasis. I watched a video of Dahlia last night. She said, I don't mind questions. I love questions. It's the accusations that are tough. Today, we actually hear people say things like, there's a problem in this country and it's called Muslims. When are we going to get rid of them? That rings true for me, that in fact, I have heard people say things like that about Muslims, not to Muslims, but I actually know people here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, who said things like that. And so I do find it accurate to describe that there's a significant portion of the population in the U.S. who think primarily negatively of Muslims. So, yes, it happens all around us. Of course, there's ignorance. Now, I look upon this as a lack of information and ignorance. And I would use this opportunity and have for the last 30 years to educate people. You don't think I have sat through audiences where they have thrown accusations, where they've said all Muslims are terrorists. And even in response to my book, they think I'm too much of a Muslim. People who accuse all the time. But They're accusing because they're ignorant and I give them the benefit of the doubt of being ignorant. And I use that as an opportunity to enlighten, to educate, to have a dialogue. If I were to have a knee-jerk attitude and immediately shut someone up and say, oh, you know, this is bigotry, I can't talk to you, then that's the end of any kind of dialogue that we would have. We have to talk to those people who accuse us. We have to talk to those people who hate us. We have to talk to those people who think all Muslims are alike and use it as an opportunity to enlighten people that in every faith, in every community, in every every culture, there are people who are good and there are people who are bad. And we need to be able to sift through that. 
And that is why the term Islam and Islamism, I have differentiated in my book. To understand Islam as a faith, like Judaism and Christianity, with all the challenges that come with a dogma and a faith of the seventh century, and Islamism, which is a political ideology, which is alive and well today and growing because people can't differentiate between the two. I was born in 1954, so I came of age, you know, in the 1960s. I didn't turn 18 till 72, but part of the background of the 1960s was in the United States and certainly in the place where I was living at that time, this differentiation between Catholics and Protestants. It was perhaps very much akin to the difference between Sunnis and Shias. There was actually the attitude, it was a mixed marriage if you were going to have a Protestant and a Catholic Mary and all of that kind of thing. So I experienced some of that kind of prejudice from the inside. Again, I was very captivated by what Dahlia said, and I was very surprised by one thing that she said. And it seems so akin to your attitude, and that's why I think you may actually be closer as sisters than you imagine. She said, when you look at when anti-Muslim sentiments spike between 2001-2013, it happened three times, but it wasn't around terrorist attacks. It was in the run-up to the Iraq war and during two election cycles. So Islamophobia isn't just the natural response to Muslim terrorism, as I would have expected. It can actually be a tool of public manipulation. I wonder how you feel about that, that the whole fur over Islamophobia, that actually that's for public manipulation as opposed to the reaction of the common person on the street in the U.S. or Canada, where you are. I would use a different terminology. I agree with the intention that, yes, during times of political stress and strife, always there is a backlash. I call it xenophobia. Racism, bigotry, xenophobia against Muslims does exist. There is no doubt about that. I avoid using the term Islamophobia because the term Islamophobia was actually created after 9-11 by a group of people to stop debate and discussion and critique of what is happening in the Muslim world. And therefore, it has become, again, highly politicized. So we have to deal with racism, we have to deal with bigotry, we have to deal with xenophobia. But using Islamophobia as an attack is something that I particularly personally don't do. I avoid as much as I can the use of that term because it has that negative political history. There are terms that have been politicized and they are used as a victim ideology, again, by Islamists. Now, when I say Islamists, I'm not talking about Muslims in general. I'm talking about those people who are using Islam as a political tool to further their political agendas. I tend to be on the liberal or left end of the spectrum. So I'm wondering what term can quickly help identify what that you would find helpful And by the way, I understand the idea that a victim ideology can be harmful to all involved. But my question is what I can do to be supportive to my Muslim brothers and sisters to identify when they are being attacked, not on the basis of anything they've done or their personality or their character, but simply because they are Muslims. Now, you said xenophobia. Well, sure, xenophobia applies to a lot of people, but I'm talking about reaching out specifically to my Muslim brothers and sisters. What's a good term to use to identify when that kind of attack is happening? Well, 
that kind of attack, of course, is based on ignorance, racism, bigotry. When a Muslim tells me that they have faced some sort of, I mean, it happens, right? It might happen to my son. I tell them, use it as an opportunity to speak to the other person. The Quran, my holy book tells me, it begins with the word compassion. We have to have compassion for those who do not understand who we are. Use it as an opportunity to talk to the other person and to explain to them that what they understand of being Muslim and what is it that they don't understand. Because a lot of it is based on fear and we have to allay those fears. You know, that racism comes out of fear and ignorance. So we have to go to those underlying causes and deal with it directly, deal with it head on. Of course, sometimes it doesn't work because sometimes people just want to throw a slur at you and run away because they're cowards. And that's okay. It doesn't affect me directly. But wherever we can, we have to use this as an opportunity to educate those who are ignorant about Muslims. It's a great opportunity for dialogue. I mean, I stood face to face with a person who looked at me and said, I hate Muslims. Instead of walking away, I said, well, what is it about Muslims that you hate? And so a conversation ensued. Not that I convinced him in the end that he needs to love Muslims. So when I speak to various audiences, I tell them, you don't have to love or like Muslims or Islam. You have the freedom not to, but at least understand why it is that you feel that way. At least have the education or the knowledge about it and then make your decision. It takes a lot of patience. <laughs> <laughs> and I totally agree with that approach. That seems exactly from my heart, my practice as a Quaker. I attempt to do what I call listening in tongues. So I try and hear a person and hear the truth and their experience behind it so I can really understand them. So when they say a word that is offensive or an accusation that's offensive to me, I still try and look within them and understand them, hear them from their core, not through their prejudices and the other things that have accreted on top of that. But I still left with the question of whether a term is bad, Islamophobia. I do believe it exists. I don't think it's useful to get into a victimhood mindset. I agree with that. But I also think that Islamist is a term that's been used politically. I think Islamophobia is a term that's been used politically. And as Dahlia pointed out, anti-Muslim sentiment peaked at the point where it was politically expedient to someone to use anti-Islamic attitudes for their own personal gain. Yes. So, you know, we have to acknowledge and understand that religious sentiments have always had a political flavor. They will be used by people in power, either in favor of or against. That's something that we have to get used to. However, as much as we can on a human level, person to person, faith to faith, we have to have more dialogue. We have to have better dialogue. We have to have honest dialogue. I don't see that happening on a large scale. Folks, you're tuned in to Spirit in Action, and that inspirational and compassionate voice you just heard is that of Rahil Raza. Amongst other boards that she serves on, she's part of the Clarion Project, the Creative Cultural Communication Steering Committee, the Parliament of World Religions, Advisory Council of Harvard Alumni for Global Women's Empowerment, and she's a member of the Muslim Reform Movement. That's just scratching the surface. She's had three books out previously, Their Jihad, Not My Jihad, How Can You Possibly Be a Muslim Feminist, and Journeys of a Spiritual Activist. 
but the latest is the ABCs of Islamism, and the website for that is theabcsofislamism.com. The link is on northernspiritradio.org, where we have links to all of our guests of the last 15 years, and we've had so many wonderful, wonderful guests, people making this world a better place, just as Rahil is working to do. So I urge you to take a look at her newest book, because I think it will make your knowledge deeper more thorough, and I think your understanding will increase. And so we can actually have more compassion in this world. And that's where I think we need to be headed. We also have with us Ran Mayer, who is a great friend and helper in service of good in the world. He joins us from Israel. Thank you again so much, Ran, for being here and for connecting me up with Rahil. Thank you. That's the least I can do. Also on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website, there's a place to comment on our programs. Please do that when you visit. There's a donate button. That's how our full-time work is supported. And I especially urge you to visit and to support the local community radio stations who carry these programs. There are some 42-plus stations across the nation carrying our programs, and they're doing a wonderful service of getting out alternative news. There's a very limited pipeline of news and music that comes to you via the commercial stations. Most radio stations and television stations in the United States are owned by just six corporations. So there's a very limited agenda being addressed there. So please support those local community radio stations. And now back to Rahil Raza. I wanted to ask you a couple things. You talked positively starting up about your experience of Islam, your own embracing of it, your own challenging of it, your own learning of it, which is a very good Muslim thing to do. I was wondering if you have any particular Muslim heroes of your own, people of Muslim background who've been inspirational to you, who've trod the path ahead of you clear away. Yes, absolutely. Part of my journey was trying to find those Muslim heroes. And of course, if I go back to history, the first woman of Islam was a woman by the name of Khatija. She was Prophet Muhammad's first wife. She was older than him. She came from a Christian family. She sent a proposal of marriage to him. She was a businesswoman and he used to work for her. And she was a very, very wealthy woman. If it wasn't for her wealth and her financial support, Islam would not be on the face of this earth today. And so as a first woman of Islam, she is my amazing role model. I mean, you know, people today talk about feminism and I say we're talking seventh century Uh, more than 1400 years ago, and this woman sending a proposal of marriage to the man who she admires. Again, in that time frame, there was the prophet's daughter, Fatima, who was a mesmerizing public speaker. When he used to receive the revelation, he'd come and narrate it to her, and then she used to actually speak in public and pass on the message. Very soon after that, uh, you may understand possibly from my conversation in my previous book that I'm fascinated by spirituality and Sufism is the spiritual component of Islam. And there was a Sufi saint in the 7th century by the name of Rabia al-Basri. And Rabia al-Basri was both a saint and a teacher and a Sufi master. It's through her life that I learned about the lack of division between genders. She used to say that in the eyes of God, I'm not a woman. I'm just a worshiper of God. You know, just 
absolutely beautiful spiritual story. So I look upon her as a role model and in the seventh century, a woman who could sit with the men and be a Sufi leader, you know, which was very difficult to do. Currently, there are women imams. There are women who have started their own mosques and they have become imams. This was unheard of in my childhood. This is such a recent phenomenon. Is in Europe, they're in California, in Canada, in the UK. And I admire these women because they're doing this against such a bad backlash. The first woman who translated the Quran, an Iranian woman who unfortunately passed away this last year, Dr. Lali Bakhtiar, she translated a version of the Quran called the Sublime Quran, in which she explained the verses that seemed to go against women, but were explained by her in a very pluralistic way. These are the intellectuals and the spiritual women that I look up to. Some wonderful, wonderful women. You mentioned all those female imams in Western world. Is there any occasion for them in any of the Muslim-majority countries in the world? Well, it started in a small way, and it is happening. So the first group of women actually to build their own mosque was a group of women in India who got so tired of the male patriarchy who got so tired of seeing the mosque become a men's club where women were not even allowed in the main section and were relegated to the basement, if at all, or were not allowed in the mosque, that they just built four walls and called it a mosque and started their own mosque. So this was many years ago. But this was in a small village. Now, with the mosques that are run by women in the Western world, women are being empowered, but they're so afraid for their lives that if they're doing it, they're doing it quietly. They're doing it under hiding. My support is for them. My admiration is for them. And I hope that the day that I win a lottery, I'll be able to start my own mosque. But it won't be just for women. It will be open for both men and women. But it will allow women to give the sermon on Fridays, which is an important voice that is being missed from the patriarchal culture today. What's your Muslim community like right where you live? Men, women, feminism. Is there a wider Muslim community there that you go out and you're well embraced? It's very diverse. So we are very fortunate that in Canada, there are Muslims from almost 50 different parts of the world, I would say. There are diverse communities that speak different languages, that follow different cultures. But the beauty of it is that the faith is the same for all of them. The mosque structure is very divisive in the sense that every community who has a different language tends to have their own mosque. In some cases, the imam is imported from outside. Rarely they have somebody who's grown up here. I was very fortunate with my family as I was growing up that we were part of a mosque structure where the imam was a professor at a university. So he was very visionary. And he, till today, remains our mentor and our guide. You spoke about your mosque one day. So I was wondering if, according to Sharia or Islamic beliefs, would it be okay for people from different religions to pray together in the mosque? Or is it something that contradicts all the beliefs and it's not allowed because it's one religion, only Muslims pray here? It, what do you think about the concept of people not only walking and studying together, but also praying together from different religions? I think it's a fantastic idea, and I certainly would invite that to happen. All we have to do is respect the tradition and the custom of how it is done. 
But there are places in countries where people of every faith are allowed inside the mosque. If you look at the mosques in Turkey before Mr. Erdogan came on the scene, the Blue Mosque was open to everybody. Every nationality and faith were allowed to go in there. In some parts of India, there are mosques where Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims, everybody goes. And so the pluralism is definitely part of it. As long as the groundwork and the traditions are respected, Uh, so in answer to your question, my mosque, I want to call it the House of Abraham. And in that sense, I would open it to everyone. It would be open to men and women from every faith. It would be a place of dialogue and discussion, a place of beauty and music and Sufism. It's a great dream. I don't know whether I'll uh, live to see it happen, but, you know, there's no harm in hoping. We can only wish that we all live long enough to see that, including you, of course. I think Sufi dance, as it's referred to, the what the whirling dervishes and others did. Do you do any of that kind of movement as well as the theology and world outlook of the Sufis? So you had asked me a little earlier about the Muslim community here in Toronto. So I attend the Sufi mosque. There is a beautiful Jirahi Sufi center. And that's where I go. And every Saturday night, they have what they call zikr, which is meditation, uh, recitation, and repetition of God's names and worship in a most beautiful way. These days, they do it online because of COVID. They are my therapy. They are my inspiration. It just inspires me to continue to be part of them. Let's jump back into some of the topics, particularly related to the books you've written. And of course, the latest one is the ABCs of Islamism, everything you want to know about radical Islam, but we're afraid to ask. There are some terms that get bandied about and sometimes treated as either sacred cows or perhaps as profanity. Among them, Islamophobia, jihad, Islamist, Islamist is the least clear to me, and you make a clear differentiation about it. Your book is The ABCs of Islamism. So what do these terms mean to you? How can they best be used or not used? Thank you. That's such an important question. And I'm going to actually quote from my book directly in the sense that I took this quote from a wonderful scholar who's written a book called Islam and Islamism. Uh, His name is Basam Tebi. He says there is a distinction between the faith of Islam and the religionized politics of Islamism, which employs religious symbols for political ends. Many will deny this distinction, including most prominent Islamists themselves. There is no doubt that many Islamists hold the sincere conviction that their Islamism is the true Islam. In fact, however, Islamism emanates from a political interpretation of Islam. It is based not on the religious faith of Islam, but on an ideological use of religion within the political realm. Islam and Islamism thus are different entities not to be confused with one another. Now, you had asked me about Islam. An Islamist is a person who uses political Islam or Islamism as a tool to promote their agenda. And this is why it's so important to differentiate between Muslim and Islamist, between Islam and Islamism. The other term that you had asked about was uh, jihad, I guess. There's a chapter in my book, The ABCs of Islamism, which explains the meaning of the term jihad as being a struggle 
Part of the problem that we are facing in the world of radical Islam is the misuse and misinterpretation of terminology, of verses from the Quran, just being misused by the Islamists. And one of the terms is a jihad, which means a struggle. It can be a struggle for greater good. It can also be an armed struggle, which was necessary in the 7th century is no longer valid now. And the reason for that is that in the 7th century, there were no nation states. There were only tribal communities that only knew how to deal with each other through warfare. That was their mode of interaction. In, in order to defend themselves, they had to be at arms with each other. So armed jihad was acceptable then. It is no longer valid in the 21st century when we have nation states, when we have the UN, when we can sit around a table and discuss the problems. And so what I'm saying is that the concept of armed jihad should be parked in the parking lot of the 7th century, as with many other practices and terms. And this is part of the reform within Islam that we need to acknowledge and accept. You've certainly drawn a lot of heat, I think, both from people on the left who think that you're too critical of Islam. That's the way that they perceive it, I think. And also from people, I think, on the right, because after all, you're a Muslim. Yes. You've mentioned that you've had at least a death threat, maybe more, certainly other kinds of threats. Is that still happening? Is that common? Is you, if you go on stage, are you sure to get some danger pointed in your direction? It's a constant threat, yes. One day I was traveling and I asked my wonderful husband of 43 years, you think that they are going to get to me or am I in danger? And he looked at me and very calmly said, it's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. So oh, wow. <laughs> with, that, with, with, with that boost of confidence, I continue to do what I do. Yes, I have uh, had a death threat. I have a fatwa. I have a lawsuit and I get hate mail, but it only means that I'm getting under the skin of those people that I should. It only means that I believe I'm speaking the truth. I'm very happy if someone challenges me directly face to face and says, can you prove what you're saying or, or what you're saying is wrong? Uh, because again, dialogue and discussion, I welcome. But those cowards who go behind my back and tend to attack me, I don't have really time for that because the work is immense, time is little. My own fears are only a drop in the ocean of the larger work that has to be done. I mean, you interviewed the wonderful Reda Peltanbuki a little while ago, the lawyer who is uh, fighting to ban female genital mutilation in Egypt. Now, this is a man who also runs for his life and anyone who is doing any work in the field of promoting women's rights or critiquing radical Islam will always have threats. You address head-on in a way that few other Muslims do, and I think with consequences. As you said, your husband of 43 years just can accept that, well, it's it'll happen sometime, they'll get to you. But you address head-on the growth of one end of Islam which is the Islamist, the radical end of it. And you certainly address that in your book, The ABCs of Islamism. Why do you think it's growing? Given that it's one of the two largest religions in the world and that the numbers of Muslims are growing quicker than those of Christians, why is that end of Islam growing so well? 
Well, there are many different reasons for this. If you look at North America, there is the history of mass immigration from Muslim majority countries. And some of that immigration is from countries that are war-torn and have gone through a lot of trauma. I mean, I'm an immigrant myself. I'm not saying that that is the problem. What I'm saying is that very often you have people who have been entrenched with some sort of an ideology and they come here without bringing about change or without integrating or assimilating into Western culture and society to some extent. They bring some of what I call their excess baggage with them. And some of it is very political. So the turf wars that were taking place in those countries back home are brought into the new lands where they come to live. Secondly, of course, the amount of money that has been pumped in the last decade from these countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia and Qatar still funding large educational institutions in the United States. At this point, um, I would recommend that you see this documentary called Covert Cash, which has been produced by the Clarion Project, in which there is an expose of the amount of foreign funding that has come into Western universities and educational institutions. And that will speak for itself, because billions of dollars in funding don't come without an agenda. And this has been happening for over a decade. So the lack of acceptance of Western values, the lack of integration, the messages that are being given to young people. So it's a combination of many issues and therefore these problems continue. But the largest part of it on the other side is the political correctness, which does not allow Western leaders to openly address these issues. So the issues that I have addressed in my book, for example, are not open dialogue and debate. If you brought them up, you would be called a bigot. There would be calls of Islamophobia. Why? Because you're talking about issues that do exist. So if you have a community that wants to impose a parallel set of religious laws, which are not compatible with human rights in the 21st century, you obviously would want to speak out and critique that. But here is the problem. Political correctness does not allow that dialogue and discussion. So the underground belly of this virus, which I call Islamism, grows. So we need more vibrant discussion and you can't shy away from discussing the real issues going on. Does democracy work well with Islam? Of course it can. Absolutely. This is one of the reasons uh, most Muslims have left these theocratic totalitarian regimes like Iran and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan is to come into a world where there is democracy. It does not stop Muslims from practicing their religion. The beauty of living in a liberal, and I say a small L liberal democracy, is the fact that you have the freedom to worship as you want, who you want, what you want, with all the bells and whistles that come with it, you know, gender equality, freedom of expression, or we hope there was freedom of expression, it's getting very quickly curtailed. So absolutely, in fact, it works very well in a democratic atmosphere, because you have your personal rights and freedoms, and then you follow the laws of the land in which you live. Unfortunately, we've seen Turkey decline in terms of their, shall we say, liberal orientation. For quite a while, Turkey was exemplary community in terms of yes. the very large, almost complete Muslim population, and yet much more liberal attitudes about women and pluralistic society, etc. What's your take on where they're headed currently? Downhill. <laughs> 
would say, you know, I was so impressed by Turkey when I visited there before, pre-Erdogan days, and I wrote a glowing article about how I could see the best of both worlds in Turkey. There was modernism, there was conservativeness, you know, it was the best of the East and West. And we looked upon it as an example of pluralism at its best with different faith communities. And that was before the Hagia Sophia was turned into a mosque. And again, in the Blue Mosque where I went, there were people of every faith and every culture praying there. It was a beautiful pluralistic example of what could have been. But Erdogan is an Islamist. He wants to be the current caliph of the Muslim world. And in order to do that, he wants to impose centuries-old laws in the 21st century. That doesn't work in any case. But this is what happens. I'm pretty sure that many Westerners really have very little idea what Sharia law refers to, positively or negatively. I think there must be positive aspects to it, but obviously there's some things that are, as you say, they're really remnants of the 7th century. So what does Sharia law mean to you, both positively, if you can find that, and negatively? Well, the word Sharia is used very few times, maybe perhaps three times in the Quran. It means moral and ethical guidance. And from that perspective, of course, all of us need moral and ethical guidance. And that's personal law. You know, it's how we purport ourselves. It's about births and marriages. It's a very personal way of moral and ethical guidance. Because the Quran, in its essence, is not a book of laws, but a book of guidance. And that's part of it. And the Sharia law is also not divine. That's something that many, even Muslims, tend to forget. It was created hundreds of years after the death of the Prophet. It's supposed to take its essence from the Quran, but Sharia laws were put into place to actually control people. And they were supposed to evolve with time. One of the other meanings of the word Sharia is the flowing path to water, which means that it should be flexible and fluid. But if you leave water stagnant for a long time, what happens to it? It starts to smell. So if 7th century laws have not changed over a period of time and have not conformed to the modern world, how can we expect them to be relevant today? Take the laws of America. 50 years ago, the laws that you had in terms of gender equality or you know, whatever the situation is are not applicable today. Similarly, Sharia has not evolved. It has stood still in time. And therefore, it is not applicable in the forms that we see today. Also, it has been misused by much of the religious leadership to impose inhuman sanctions on women, on the LGBTQ community, on minorities. And it is part of the misuse of Sharia that is causing Islamism to grow as well, because, again, people do not question. What do you think are the major problems that women in Muslim-majority societies or also in Western societies faced by the Muslim community or society, and what can we do about it? In my understanding, the major problem is slightly different in third world countries. So in third world countries, for example, in Pakistan, where I come from, we have forced an underage marriage, we have honor killings, we have patriarchy at its its worst. But that is primarily because of lack of education and socioeconomic issues. You know, these women are not economically empowered and they're not educated. So that is a bad combination. Now we come to the West where women are socioeconomically empowered and they are educated, but some of the same problems exist here as well because of the patriarchy. 
So there are immigrants who will come to the West or they'll come to other countries, but they bring those same cultural values with them, which means that their mindset is still in that home country. Their mindset is still in the seventh century, yet they have physically come to a Western country and they cannot get rid of those attitudes. So if you look at statistics, if you look at the UN statistics and the statistics of the United States, of Canada, of the UK, you will see that honor killings have been on the rise in Muslim majority societies. And forced and underage marriage is an issue. Female genital mutilation, which, by the way, is not a Quranic practice, but has been culturally accepted by large Muslim communities, is on the rise in the United States, in Canada, and in the UK, to a point where it has become a societal problem. It's easy to say that these are things that are happening back home, but they're happening right here as well on a smaller scale. And fortunately, we're able to talk about it We need to expose the problem, educate the masses, and empower for change. Well, there's so much more that we could, and I would love to talk about, Rahil. I'm so thankful that you took this time to sit with me and for you, Ron, also to help out. Again, I wouldn't have connected up with Rahil except for your aid. Thank you so much, Ron, for connecting us up. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you, Ron. It was great to see you and great to hear you and for you to ask those good questions. And Rahil, I am so honored that you chose to join me, and I'm especially thankful for the work of communication, connection, and depth that you bring to the community there in Toronto, Canada, where you're located. But the fact that you're freeing up tongues and minds and hearts and spirits all across the world by your discourse, by your insight. I specifically love the way that you lift up women and women's role, and you're not afraid of addressing the thorny spots. And that is a great inspiration for all of us. And thank you so much for joining us for Spirit in Action. It's my pleasure. And thank you for having me and have a wonderful week. Thank you so much. And you have some wonderful rice and lentils for lunch. Thank you. <laughs> and remember, Rahil's latest book is called The ABCs of Islamism. You'll find it on the website, theabcsofislamism.com. And it's on Amazon as well. It'll soon be on her website, rahilraza.com. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. You can find her three previous books as well. Please immerse yourself in her thought and her spirit and join us again next week for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 